The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by CAPS Managing Editor Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, another very busy week in the China-Africa space. Let's just run through a couple of the highlights from the, the past week, which I think are very interesting. And then we're going to pull back the focus a little bit to look at some BRI issues, G7 initiatives, climate change. But let's start our conversation at the ground level. 600,000 vaccines from China arrived in Zambia. Now, this was the first delivery of vaccines in Africa from a Chinese supplier in a very, very long time. If you recall last year, man, the Chinese were just pumping the vaccines into Africa. Altogether, the Chinese have delivered somewhere around 125 to 180 million. Again, the government says 180 million. Bridge Consulting in Beijing, which is the off-sourced resource for the international media, they source it about uh, 125, 125 million. So it's it's a range in there somewhere. But 600,000 arrived in Zambia this week. And at the same time, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Hua Chunyun, she reaffirmed China's commitment to deliver 600 million doses to Africa. Here's what she said on Twitter. China will follow through the pledged donation of 600 million and 150 million doses of vaccines to Africa and ASEAN countries, respectively, as part of our effort to close the immunization gap. Now, that brings up a lot of questions, Kobus, because the Chinese have been very slow right now to meet that pledge. And then so if they are going to all of a sudden flood the zone with hundreds of millions of vaccines, either manufactured locally in places like Morocco or Egypt or flown in from China, one has to wonder if the capacity is there to actually process those vaccines. And I say that because a new report came out from Oxford University this week that revealed only a handful of the world's poorest countries have reached the 70% vaccination threshold. The vast majority of those countries are under 20%. Many of those are in Africa. And here was the statistic, Cobus, that I thought was most interesting. Nearly half of the vaccine doses delivered to the continent thus far have gone unused. So you put that fact together with the fact that the Chinese are promising to deliver hundreds of millions of vaccines. I don't know how those how that works. Yeah, I'm not sure how it's going to be delivered. I'm not sure where it's going to be made, the ones that need to be processed, because if I remember correctly, it's supposed to be 400,000 doses are supposed to be made in Africa. 400 million. 400 million. 400 million, sorry, yeah. And, you know, kind of the other question is, of course, is variants and the fact that the Chinese vaccines that are being delivered are not um, the messenger RNA vaccines. So in an Omicron era, we're not sure how how much good that does. But here we are, you know, so so we'll have to see how, how they manage it for the rest of the year. 
Well, that brings up the issue that they're having in China right now with the spread of Omicron and the shutdowns that have been roiling international supply chains. Kobus, this week, you also wrote about how up and down the cobalt and copper supply chains in the Democratic Republic of Congo, how they've been responding to the shutdowns of the port of Durban. And the port itself is technically up. The problem now in South Africa is not the port. And if you recall from the past couple of weeks, South Africa has had these epic storms. And they just destroyed vast parts of the infrastructure. Tragically, hundreds of people died as well. But the roads and the railways leading into the port of Durban, that is in many ways the gateway to the rest of the world for Africa, or at least southern Africa, has been closed or severely constrained. Then you have the problem in China right now where the lockdowns are impacting the ability to offload cargo. So somewhere around 25-26% of all the world's ships now are idling off the coast of China. A very important situation that's going on right now. So Kobus, what did you find out when you were writing that story about the Chinese reactions to the supply chain disruptions in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Well, you know, it was very interesting. They they were they were really looking at the the specific kind of um, impacts on their own businesses, um, and these were my, both miners and traders and and refiners. Um, and you know, kind of the, so, so they were talking about delays. Like the, the, they're saying, like it looks like it, it will only really start start kind of gathering steam again. The shipments will only really start gathering steam again in in about three to four weeks. But you know, the wider issue, of course, the the the, the irony of all of this is is that cobalt is the mineral that's the closest link to climate change mitigation. You know, that those that is the mineral we need to build all these e-vehicles and electricity storage. And I think South Africa, the South African government is increasingly, the way they talk about these Durban floods, is in the context of climate change because this is unseasonable rain. This is clearly disrupted weather, you know, kind of causing the situation. And it's it's, it's just this kind of historical irony that that, that is, what is what is, you know, kind of also taken taking out the, the trade in the one mineral that we need to start solving the problem. Well, that trade in that mineral in particular, cobalt and copper as well, a lot of it comes from the mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo and nearby in Zambia that does flow through South Africa. That accounted for a significant part of the trade between China and Africa. And we just got this week Q1, the first quarter trade numbers for the year. And boy, They were impressive. Overall, China-Africa trade surged 24.5% to $64.9 billion. Chinese imports from Africa were at $29.7 billion, up 33%. And I'm going to tell you where that came from very shortly. Chinese exports to Africa up 18% at $35.1 billion. Kobus, here are your top five trading partners in the first quarter of 2022. Not surprising. South Africa is number one, and that brings up the question as to whether or not these trade numbers are going to run into problems now in the second quarter and the third quarter, given the fact that the port of Durban is, in fact, constrained. So it'll be interesting to see the impact on South Africa and whether or not they'll retain that top position. Angola, DRC, Nigeria, and Egypt are the rounding out the top five that's there. Now, on this question of cobalt... It was the DRC that stood out in the first quarter, and that's one of the reasons why you're seeing this huge jump in trade. Trade between the DRC and China rocketed up 104.7% this year compared to the same time last year. 
Imports from the DRC to China surged 113%. Most of that, of course, is cobalt. And last point on this, and I thought this was very funny, is that China in just the first quarter of this year did $64.9 billion of trade, as we mentioned, and that surpassed all of U.S. trade with Africa for the entire year of 2021, which was at $64.5 billion. So that really does put the the trade relationship in context. What's your thought on those trade figures? It's really interesting that that um, figure about the China trade versus U.S. trade is very revealing. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting that that they managed to to keep the trade up. Of course, I think you know the 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 subsequent quarters will probably show the impact of these lockdowns and the impact of the shipping disruption. Um, because the issue isn't only the the port in Durban or even the lockdowns in China, but but the fact that so many ships and also shipping containers are stuck in different parts of the world and that you know that the, the people who need them can't get them so um you know that i think we those will definitely impact i think not only on trade figures but probably on inflation as well in our last show earlier this week that we did with deborah Radigam's team who prepared that excellent report on the port of mombasa and the standard gauge railway we talked a little bit about the new loan data that came out of the boston university global development policy center by the way if you are looking for any loan data related to africa go to the global development policy center's new upgraded enhanced beautiful chinese interactive loan database website we'll put a link to it in the show notes it has all of the information that you're going to want but uh, I've, I've marinated on this over the past few days now, and it's. let me just refresh those of you who weren't familiar with the data and you didn't have a chance to listen to our last show. Basically, what it came down to is that in 2020, which is the last year that we have data that BU looked at, loans totaled $1.9 billion. That's down considerably from the previous year, which was, I think, let me just quickly pull it up here, 77% down from 2019, where they did $8.2 billion. So a lot of change in the loan picture. I guess, Cobus, for me, the thing that kind of stands out is I'm surprised there were any loans, given what we saw in terms of the data in, in places like Latin America, where it literally went down to zero in South America and Latin America. So the fact that even almost $2 billion of policy bank loans came through, in some ways, I guess, is redeeming. Yeah, I think I think it sh it shows this thing that that or shows this reality that what what we're seeing isn't necessarily a retreat, you know, from from lending or a retreat from global south projects or from the continent, but it's a kind of a, a reworking, rethinking of of a new direction, um, and. You know, I, I think I think to, to a certain extent, what it also reflects is a kind of a pause. You know, to, to regroup due to COVID, but also due to the the announcement um, from Xi Jinping uh, in 2021 that they're not going to be funding coal power electricity anymore. And obviously, power generation is one of the biggest you know fields that fields that they that they that they fund. And that, of course, was completely upended by that by that announcement, particularly in, in certain countries. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether they can do stuff like, for example, hook up the companies that specialize in renewable to the funders in in China which because there isn't necessarily such a close link between those and you know and and the other big challenge is getting african and other global south governments 
to identify and prep projects, like setting up a project pipeline in order for those projects to then kind of be ready to roll. You know, so, so my, my feeling is, you know, we'll probably see some more development on, in, in this field in, in a few years. But at the moment, I think it's this kind of, kind of awkward transition phase. One little footnote on the BU data that they looked at. So they looked at all of the loan data from 2000 to 2020. And what they found was that the top five recipients of Chinese loans over that 20-year period are here in order. Angola, by far number one. Ethiopia is number two. Zambia is number three. Kenya, number four. And Egypt is number five. What is interesting about those top five is that three out of the five are not resource-rich. And one of the perceptions of Chinese lending, both in Africa and around the world, is that they've gone to countries where there are strategic resources. But in the case of Kenya, Egypt, and Ethiopia, not particularly well endowed with resources. So just an interesting point there that they are the top five recipients of Chinese loans from the period of 2000 to 2020. And again, they don't have resources. Now, what they do have is other strategic imperatives. Egypt and Kenya in particular, but also Ethiopia as well. So lots of factors go into that. But let's think about now how the loans and all of these various issues really connect to the health and the state of the Belt and Road Initiative. And that's a topic that is obviously of great concern in places like Washington, Brussels, and also throughout Africa and the rest of the world. It's wondering what is going on right now, in part because China is so distracted with all of the the drama that's going on at home with Omicron, also the preparations for the big political event that's going to happen this fall related to Xi Jinping's taking on another term as president. So a lot of questions now about the health and state of the Belt and Road Initiative. And we're going to talk also about some G7 initiatives and, Cobus, to your favorite topic, which is you've alluded many, many times already on our show about climate and some of the just transitions. So we'll talk about that. We have a very exciting lineup ahead for for the rest of the program. And to join us to help us kind of clear through some of these things, we're thrilled to have on the show for the first time Cynthia Liao, who is a Schwartzman Academy Fellow in the Africa Program at Chatham House in London. A very good afternoon to you, Cynthia. Thank you, Eric. Good afternoon to you both, too. It's great to have you on the show. Apologies that our wind-up here was a little bit longer than I expected, in part because there's just so much going on. You've been doing a lot of research lately on the Belt and Road. You've been doing a lot of travels in, in Africa. You were just in Rwanda. You've done quite a bit of research in Kenya as well. Everybody wants to know, where are we right now with the Belt and Road? What are you seeing in your studies and in your research, both in Africa and elsewhere, in terms of the health and state of the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, so the Belt and Road Initiative, I think, has definitely taken a bit of a hit over the course of the pandemic. Um, My last uh, major trip to a project was to the SGR, uh, which is based in Kenya, the Standard Gauge Railway. Um, And there I was looking a lot at some of the social, environmental, and to some extent, the economic impacts of, of the project. And the focus, I think, oftentimes on BRI projects is on the financial sustainability and the debt repayment. Um, And lesser is actually known, um, perhaps because the impacts are happening primarily at the community or local level on some of the, um, you know, the impacts of uh, sometimes sometimes negative impacts of the projects uh, to local communities. And so a lot of my research was actually focused on, um, you know, how are communities being impacted, particularly looking at uh, some of the 
gendered impacts. Um, so how are women um, and families impacted by the development of these projects? And also whether there are actually lessons to be learned, right, for um, other development initiatives as they also go uh, take off, um, particularly those that are being led by uh, G7 countries. And in this work, what, what did you find about the gendered and, and, and social impacts of the SGI? Yeah, so I, uh, I, I, we found that as it relates to women and gender, oftentimes there are actually many harmful and negative impacts that are not uh, being recorded. And that's not to say that there isn't any form of ESIA or environmental and social impact um, assessment or monitoring. There actually, in the case of Kenya, there was a quite a robust system um, between Chinese, Kenyan, and an international consortium. But women and gender were often not really on the agenda um, when it came to this type of monitoring. Um, and so frontline experiences of women were, uh, you know, quite varied in terms of of um, exacerbating some of the existing inequalities that women already face. So, for example, in many of the villages along the along the railways, uh, you often saw a higher transmission of issues such as uh, sexually transmitted. Uh, diseases um, because of the influx of both Kenyan and Chinese workers that come into the region, uh, which also actually increases the prevalence of sex trade. Uh, and this is quite a strong linked um, evidence-backed um, uh, 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 effect that happens alongside many infrastructure projects. Um, but also we saw that because women are more likely to not to have access or the rights to the land that give them their livelihood, uh, when development like a you know railway comes through, uh, you often see um, you know women kind of getting the short end of the stick as it relates to getting land um, payments uh, if they are if there are any damages or relocation that's needed, um, and uh, oftentimes the the funding uh, that comes through is through fairly corrupt and um, non transparent systems, of which women often are the ones who bear the brunt of you know uh, bearing the cost of these uh, these impacts. Uh, but we did also see that women actually were quite um, active and engaged. They were not just, you know, the recipients and, and, and taking these uh, negative impacts uh, without, without a fight. Um, and so we also did see a lot of com community mobilization and activation uh, to advocate for their rights. Now, was anything that you found specific to the Belt and Road Initiative? Because everything you've just described is more associated with development. So, for example, uh, highways and new roads tend to lead to more sexually transmitted diseases because truckers move along those roads and whatnot. So I guess, is there anything specific to the Belt and Road Initiative, or is this more a product of development? Yes, I think the interesting challenge along with the BRI is that actually China has a number of standards as it relates to these infrastructure projects that they you know hold quite um, in hand in when it, in Beijing, right? When they are actually going out to do uh, and develop these projects, but. Unfortunately, I think when when the um, various development actors, whether be it the SOEs uh, and the, their local contractors, are actually working in these countries, um, the coming together of these standards and implementation of them, uh, you really don't see that following through as as significantly as you would you would want to expect. And I think what this kind of speaks to is that even though China may uphold a certain level of like uh, rules or expectations, there just really isn't the 
mechanisms to actually, uh, I guess, control or monitor how your um, independent actors are performing in, in these countries, especially when there is oftentimes like a weaker rule of law and not as much um, framework for accountability uh, if nothing is done to address these negative impacts. And in the case of the SGR, where did the, you know, where did that kind of um, implementation fall down? Was it on the SOE or con- Chinese contractor side? Was it on the, the, the regulatory, you know, kind of like Im- impact of, of, of Kenyan governments? Or, you know, kind of like was, was there kind of aspects of the, you know, of, of the kind of joint, the joint kind of special purpose vehicle kind of companies and so on that, that, that are frequently set up for these, for these uh, projects? Um, you know, like, like where, where should we kind of look for, for, those, for, for the fault of those lapses? Yes. So I think oftentimes it's the state-owned enterprises, uh, and, and particularly in the, this case, uh, because they were the ones kind of leading most of the actual construction and development work. Um, and I think I, I mentioned that there was a joint consortium that was conducting the uh, social and environmental impact assessment. And although they were quite good at documenting, uh, right, like actually listing out all of the things that were going wrong, whether uh, they were an environmental or social uh, consequence, and trying to advocate for resolution, um, the, the, the reality is that many times the, the SOE partners um, are not actually incentivized to go through each of these cases one by one and, and resolve them. And so I do think to some extent there isn't enough of in uh, pressure, um, perhaps from Beijing, to actually exert that influence over their, um, uh, their development actors abroad. And um, I, I, there were cases that were actually brought between, you know, in front of the Kenyan uh, High Commission and, and courts um, to try to hold these SOE partners accountable. But I don't think any of them actually were successful. Now, this is exactly the kind of thing that you hear from U.S. and European and even to some extent Japanese stakeholders who talk about their construction and infrastructure development initiatives, whether it is Build Back Better World or Global Gateway, that they will do better. And they will really pay more attention to environmental, social, and corporate governance. And so I guess my question is, do you have any evidence in your research that an American or European or Japanese company does things different and the situation for women in a country like Kenya would fare better, I mean, measurably better, than what's happened with the Chinese. Yes, Eric, as, as you mentioned, a lot of these new ambitions, uh, as we can say, uh, for kind of re, re-engaging of development from the G7 countries are quite early stage. And so at this point, it is kind of, it is quite difficult to pin to, or sorry, to point to um, precise examples of uh, what you could say like a better outcome in, in a development project. Um, I think one of the the, the um, opportunities really is in some of this global standard setting and um, what G7 or sorry, I should say the OECD has actually done is kind of publish this uh, new implementation framework for the Blue Dot Network, uh, which you may know as um, a set of, you know, promises by G20 countries to actually go and implement high quality infrastructure. And the certification system does sound quite promising on paper, right? There is a kind of independent monitoring, a design to implementation stages, and it's supposed to help incentivize the private sector and different actors in the development world to 
to um, attract higher quality projects. I think the challenge here is that one, it, it really is looking to be like a positioned against China or, you know, countering to China when really like China needs to be kind of brought into the fold um, in order to make, you know, a system like this legitimate and, and international. But they've literally said it's to confront and contain China. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's they're not even subtle about it. No. So there's no way you can bring China into the fold when literally the Trump administration and now the Biden administration are saying we're using these mechanisms to confront and contain. And Ursula van der Leyen did the same thing. So yes. how is that possible to bring China into it? So when you speak to the actual development agency, people who are working on projects, their view is actually that it's quite impossible to completely decouple from China at the project level. Um, for one, the countries, the host countries themselves have a lot of agency in deciding, you know, what types of projects, how will they be done? And then secondly, they, you know, currently when it comes to working on projects, there's already a lot of collaboration that's happening um, in certain instances. And China does have certain strengths. And so really, I think seeing this as like a, a tit, not maybe not a tit for tat, but like um us versus them really is not going to be useful in the long run if, if your goal is, as stated, to improve the quality of infrastructure being invested in worldwide. And so um, I think you may have caught that the foreign minister of China had actually made an offer right back in February, right before um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I think this got lost a little bit, but had made an offer to actually collaborate uh, with the Build Back Better world. Uh, through the BRI. And I, I really don't think these types of offers should be um, downplayed or, or completely ignored because it may be a little bit short-sighted to write off China as a partner um, in the long run. Do you have a, an impression of where Build Back Better World is is standing right now? Because, you know, kind of we last year we were we were hearing, you know, all, all these, these accounts or just these kind of listening tours and so on that, that they were doing, you know, kind of gathering information. And then Ukraine happened, as you mentioned, and, you know, kind of since then there hasn't been that much action on it. So I was wondering where it's actually standing. Yes, that's a great question. And it seems to be the, the million dollar question, even when we speak to different uh, people within the relevant US administrations. It seems like there's just not a lot of clarity at this point about what kind of falls in scope versus out of scope for the Build Back Better World project. But I think that it doesn't necessarily reflect that there isn't a lot of work going on, because I think what you see in the U.S. domestic planning is a ratcheting up of, uh, you know, spending for both the State Department as well as USAID. And I think through a series of recent announcements and speeches, development has certainly become, you know, a huge part of U.S. foreign policy right up there with uh, defense and diplomacy. And I think that the fact that, you, you know, Samantha Power is the, the administrator for uh, USAID being elevated to like a permanent position in the National Defense Committee also speaks to this as well. So development has really become uh, a big sort of pillar of the overall strategy as it comes to uh, expanding U.S. leadership and regaining that leadership in global health and climate um, and, and exerting that geopolitical influence. But unfortunately, I think we're still all kind of waiting for the details of, of this of the strategy. And this may, in fact, be a further delay given the current crisis in, in Ukraine. At what point do we stop taking this seriously? And I don't mean that flippantly. But it's literally coming up on one year since they made an announcement. Mm -hmm. As Kobus made the point that they've Dalip Singh, who is the deputy national security advisor, fascinating by the way that it's the NSC in the White House that has been leading on B three W. 
It's not been USAID. Mm. It's not been the development agencies. It's the National Security Council that's been leading on this. Okay, that does give some insight as to where the motivations are. But Dalip Singh went to South America. He went to Africa. He did these listening tours. But we still haven't seen anything. The Biden administration, as far as I can tell, is one of the least popular presidencies in modern American history. They are about to get a shellacking in Congress in the fall midterm elections when the Republicans take hold. Remember that he couldn't get Build Back Better domestically passed. Okay. Mm. Come next year, we go into the crazy season of the U.S. presidential election, where the idea of spending billions of dollars of American taxpayer money on building roads in Ghana is inconceivable. Inconceivable. Now, getting the private sector involved, which is what they say they want to do, there's nothing stopping the private sector today from getting involved. They don't need a banner and a ribbon to say build back better world. If the private sector wanted to get involved in Africa today, they would. But they don't. The European private sector is involved in Africa. The Japanese private sector is involved in Africa. But the Americans aren't really there. So I guess at what point do we stop pretending that this is actually going to be a real thing, given the political realities that we're facing amid a war, a pandemic, an election, and the fact that American taxpayers are not really in a very globalized mood right now? Mm. Yes, Eric, I think that's a really good point. And um, I, I do think that there is not going to be the same um, anywhere close to the same types of funding envelopes that, uh, you know, whether it's from China or even possibly from the EU uh, coming out of the US. And they're really when I go back to, you know, the, what I mentioned about standard, um, I think a lot more of this may be around uh, corralling, um, setting those international standards and, you know, promotion of uh, certain types of values-led um, approach to investment, as opposed to making those investments um, from the but, state itself. But so, wasn't that the Blue Dot Network that was supposed to do that? That's exactly the standards, but Blue Dot was made in 2019. We're almost three and a half years. And as far as I know, there's not that many Blue Dot projects around the world. Right. Yes, I think they're actually, like I said, only just in the process of creating the framework, right, for how a blue dot project would even be certified. So it is a very slow and um, not have been uh, making too much progress today. So I think that that criticism is right. Do people in the development world take this stuff seriously? Do people actually talk about this in a serious way? So that's, it's interesting you ask that because when I was spending some time in Rwanda um, at one of the UNECA uh, forums on sustainable development, what I did notice is that, you know, these new fangled development initiatives really wasn't on the agenda at all. Um, and oftentimes when you spoke to different uh, representatives, either they were quite a, kind of loosely aware um, or really it was not top of mind. So I think there is a fair bit of skepticism um, until more details can be can be real, realized. And also, um, I think it really comes down to funding coming out the door. Um, I would say, though, just to kind of put a piece in there about the EU, is that the Global Gateway has announced a bit more um, than the U.S. has. Yeah, they're, they've already out the door. They've got projects, yeah. money going to, I think it was Morocco and yes, Ghana. Yes, yes. So they're, they've got money going. And it didn't take them that long to do it compared to what the Americans no, are doing. No, no. But I think there is also still, you know, not necessarily hesitation, but no one's really expecting that 300 billion euro number right right away. Or it's unclear what that number is technically coming from. But they are they are starting. And I think the other thing they're, they've been doing is um, I, I know that the, the European Commission Joint Research Center has done quite a bit of work in 
uh, planning out these development corridors and looking at kind of the regional perspective of how they could engage um, in a specific area. Um, One thing that's interesting is that a lot of, I think, the prioritization of these corridors is around European trade, uh, you know, not surprisingly. Um, But I think it's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how these projects are accepted also by the, the host countries as well. So I'd like to segue to an adjacent area, um, which is just climate transition. And obviously, Build Back Better World and Global Gateway, they all pay a lot of lip service to the the need for just climate transition, particularly in in places like Africa. You recently co-wrote an an article for Chatham House in which you pointed out that that at the previous Council of Parties, like the the COP26 meeting in Glasgow, uh, there, there were a lot of a lot of targets funding targets for african countries to to achieve this uh, a just climate transition but they actually got very little of it and that and that puts a, a lot of additional pressure on the next cop meeting which will actually be in africa and egypt um later this year um what are you expecting for cop 27 and you know kind of an, and 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 where do you think we we are in terms of in terms of kind of getting the money to pay for the the climate transition that africa needs and as you mentioned, the uh, upcoming COP in, in Egypt is uh, being hailed by the African continent as an African COP where um, African priorities are really being elevated or hopefully elevated as part of the global uh, conversation on climate change. And uh, one of those topics, as you mentioned, is related to just, just transition. And I think right now there's a really important and controversial debate that's happening across the continent um, where you're seeing, uh, you know, certainly the countries that are African countries that are quite you know high in terms of polluting, uh, for example, South Africa and Nigeria, taking a look at like what does it actually mean to have a just transition um, in those economies, and uh, there are you know quite different views right emerging. And in Ecobus, you you probably could speak to this even better than I can, uh, sitting in, in South Africa, but that you know the exploration of gas and the the investment in gas as a way to transition from coal has has largely been floated as a as a viable as a viable option. And I think there's a lot of global controversy or debate on whether this this makes sense and and whether this can be supported right by uh, climate change funding. Um, and so I think in in all of this this just transition debate, I think it's important to kind of tying back to uh, what we were talking about in terms of standards and in in inclusive sustainable development that uh, a lot of times um, what's considered just from a like a, a developed country perspective can be quite different than what is considered just in a developing country or African country perspective and that there's many different types of groups and uh, vulnerable communities that become impacted that all kind of need their own um, considerations and agenda uh, women being one of them but obviously there are many others um, and so I think that's something that will be very high on the agenda um, at COP27 in Egypt. And maybe I'll add one more point to this, which is that, like, you know, um, having attended a couple of uh, civil society meetings around just transition recently, there's also a, a perspective where, you know, a just transition in Africa should also include electrification, right? Like, so moving from biomass uh, fuels to uh, to electricity um, and how to do that at scale and whether sort of all forms of electrification could be actually considered considered just, right? And so that's a very different conversation than you'd be having in, in Canada, where I'm from, uh, where you're trying to transition workers out of, out of oil sands. 
I mean, maybe I'm just in a bad mood tonight, so I apologize for being grumpy. But <laughs> in a previous show that we did on this, we read through all the statistics of the global North country's dependence on fossil fuels. And just the gall of these countries, your country in particular, Canada, my country, the United States, the Australians have the <laughs> nerve to talk about this stuff as if they're serious. And they're talking to Africans about just transition when they themselves earn vast majorities of their budgets based on fossil fuel exports. I'm missing something here. How does Canada have any legitimacy whatsoever to be talking about this? Yes, I, I, I unfortunately can't sit here and defend Canada on that one. <laughs> how do we how do we get to this? I mean, and the United States is the largest oil exporting country in the world. And Americans have made it very clear that they're going to do more of that. And when the Republicans come back into power, guess what? They're going to pull out of Paris climate. Why? Because we know they've already done that before. And it's drill, baby, drill. And yet they have the gall to be talking to Africans about <laughs> just transitions. What am I missing here? I don't understand this whole discourse where white people get up and start preaching to everybody else when they themselves are either consuming or producing fossil fuels at orders of magnitude larger than anybody in the global south. I agree with you. And I also, you know, on the point of Canada, I, I sometimes I'm quite surprised by how you know, how good of an image Canada has managed to keep up in in, the, in, the, in these years, uh, you know, with the level of emissions that, you know, especially emissions per capita that you're seeing in Canada at this point. But I completely, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, further to this conversation, I think there's also conversations on about whether, you know, if you're asking a certain country to not exploit a, a, a resource, uh, you know, the compensation really should be tied to the value, right, of actually extracting and selling and exporting those resources. Um, do I think there's enough ambition globally to create a mechanism for that i'm i'm fairly skeptical I, I don't know about you by the way the dirty little secret about canada and australia in africa is that a company like ivanhoe which is one of the largest mining companies in the world is canadian takes out vastly more resources out of africa and the australians are the same whether it's rio tinto or others than they put back in the form of aid and development yeah the extractive resource powerhouses from Canada and Australia are shocking. We focus a lot of our attention on what the Chinese are doing in terms of exploitation. My, nobody, nobody pays attention to what the Canadians and Australians in terms of the amount that they take out and the amount that they put back in again. Mm. Those are really disparate numbers. Just a little food for thought out there. So on, on that point, I was wondering where you see China's position in this in this just transition debate, uh, because obviously it's it's such a wild card, you know, as both a, a massive polluter and a massive producer of, of green green energy capacity. Uh, what, what role do you think China is going to be playing in this? I'll, I'll caveat by saying that this is a bit speculative uh, because I don't haven't seen um, too much of their particular support for this concept, um, whether through you know African countries uh, or, or otherwise. Um, but I you know I think one interesting thing to highlight is that China did come out at the I think near the end of last year with their global development initiative. I think it's it's the is the name GDI. Um, which I found to be intriguing because uh, it seems to be much more aid-based and also seems to be through like a multilateral 
or attempt at multilateralism, right? Because they actually launched this event or this this strategy at like a at the UN headquarters in 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 New York City and brought in like a hundred countries as partners or, or something like that, which is um, quite atypical, I think, for for China. Um, and so I wonder about the potential for something like the GDI to help support. Uh, support African countries in whether it's just transition or other forms of um, climate mitigation and adaptation finance. Um, But honestly, at this point, it is is fairly speculative. But I do think there is almost like a convergence, right, or like a crossover where China is certainly looking more at these um, uh, aid and development projects and not just at infrastructure anymore. And while the West is kind of going the other way. Okay. So it's been a somewhat hopeful, somewhat pessimistic conversation, but maybe that's just a reflection of where we are in the times we live in today. So, I mean, this is not a particularly happy time, but let's try and, and again, help help us leave on a more positive note. When you're looking forward to COP27, you're looking forward to some of these, these areas of research that you're investigating at Chatham House, uh, what's your prognosis for, for the next year or so when, on some of the topics that you're focusing on? Yeah, I think it will be... Sorry, this is actually a very broad question. So <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, that's exactly what I wanted to do was just to leave you with a, a, a nice softball. To I need to feel better okay. about the world, okay. and I'm hoping you're going to tell us <laughs> that you know things are going to get better. Yes. Everything's yeah. okay. Um, Don't worry. Okay, great. Uh, yes. <laughs> so um, you know, I I I, I remain uh, optimistic and and also hopeful that with a lot of the attention on the African continent, that COP twenty seven will yield a lot of results. And I think, um, you know, Eric, I know you were expressing a lot of pessimism about just transition for the African continent, but the reality is that you know there's so much development and electrification that really does need to happen and. Um, and renewables and clean energy is 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 a viable path, right? I think um, Ethiopia, for example, has uh, made some very promising ambitions about 100% electrification through uh, a primarily renewable model that has also have many levels of inclusivity as it relates to training of you know women and um, STEM workers, for example, in, involved. And so I think we can really look to Africa as a place for innovation um, and, and new innovative ways of thinking about development in this world that we live in, which is very turbulent, is recovering from COVID and, and, and is also battling climate change. Um, but it, you know, I, I I'm optimistic that uh, it it's going to it's going to work out, um, and that hopefully these uh, these well, different go. development partners. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much for that. I think we all needed that. It's like a warm cup of tea at the end, you know. So that is, uh, and let's also look to Kenya, which is I think a world leader in terms of its uh, use of renewable energy. So there is a lot of innovation that's happening in Africa. Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Cynthia Liao is a Schwartzman Academy fellow in the Africa program at Chatham House in London. You have a lot of interesting things going on. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yes, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Cynthia Liao, I believe underscore. And also feel free to drop me, uh, you know, an email at any time, uh, cliao at chathamhouse.org. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to all of that and some of Cynthia's writings in the show notes. Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you both so much. It was very enjoyable. Kobus, that was a lot of fun talking with Cynthia. It's been a while since we've had one of those free-flowing conversations. I expect to get quite a bit of 
of mail, angry mail from our Canadian listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so our Canadian and Australian fans may not be too happy with what I had to say. But it is interesting how there does seem to be this duality in terms of how Canada and Australia do development in places like Africa and the amount of scrutiny that's paid to the Chinese. Again, not to defend the Chinese in any way. They deserve, as, as far as I'm concerned, all foreign actors, especially the Chinese, deserve as much scrutiny as possible. But there does seem to be a pretty big discrepancy between what Canada and Australia take out of Africa and what they put back into it, and again, how little coverage there is of it. These issues of sustainability, climate, are going to be very prominent in our coverage leading up to COP27, both because it's on the African continent, but also because we have a new Arabic language service, and there's a lot of interest in the Middle East and in North Africa about these issues, and it's very exciting that we're able to cover them from uh, an Arabic language point of view and with Arabic uh, stakeholders. So we're very excited about that. Also, make sure you check out our French language website, Projet Afrique Chine, as well. And uh, the team is doing a great job on both of those sites. So it'll be very interesting for us this year because we have these new language sites to be able to pull in information from social media and also some of the analysis that we're going to be generating on those channels. Yeah, completely. And and it's also the the space you know between the Arabs, Arabic-speaking world and China is a really interesting space also for these just transition issues. Because recently Xi Jinping had a uh, um, had a call with his Saudi counterpart, um, and one of the things that they were discussing was green energy. So the Saudis and, and the Chinese are, are working together on, on green energy, and the Chinese are doing a lot of kind of green energy issues, like like initiatives in other parts of of the Arabic speaking world as well, um, including in North Africa. So you know, so so that's a very kind of interesting emerging field. It's interesting because we've been seeing a lot of headlines recently about Huawei's activities in the solar power space in particular and in the energy sector more broadly and in the uae and in saudi arabia they're doing quite a bit so that's going to be something very interesting to follow i'm not sure if it's substantive or it's just good pr and good marketing that huawei is pivoting into some of these new energy initiatives but we'll be looking at that as well so and they recently bought like built a, an, an installation in sub-saharan africa as well right well they did they've i think it was Ghana, I want to say, but yeah, yes, they it have, was in West Africa, but I can't remember exactly which country. I can't remember where it was, but you're right, and it just kind of really does give an indication that Huawei's pivoting into energy, and that's something if you haven't been following, you may want to pay attention to, because Huawei is involved in so many different businesses that what we call below the line that you just don't see in this infrastructure space. A lot of people focus on the phones and the obviously above the line things, those consumer devices or the network switching and things like that that are the focus of the United States and Europe. And in terms of security, but there's all these other categories like mobile money, again, energy, all these areas that Huawei is very, very active in. Security is another one. And so something very interesting to watch. We haven't done a Huawei show in quite some time, so I'm, I'm keen to do that and, and and really to look at it. So let's leave the conversation there. So much more, obviously, to talk about. Glad that we were able to touch base on some of the, the green and environmental issues. Again, something we're keen to do throughout the rest of the year going forward. Again, if you are interested in following everything that we're doing, go to our website. We now have the Arabic, French, and English tabs at the top. So if you speak those languages... Or if you just want to see what's going on in those different languages, Google Translate's really good right now. Uh, Nesrin is running our Arabic site, and Giro is running our French site. And, and again, we're just so thrilled to have this great team of journalists from China and Africa now. Uh, six people overall 
cranking out so much great content every day. And if you want to follow everything that Cobus and I and Christopher are doing on the English side, you can subscribe to our, our website at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We've made subscriptions super affordable at $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. We really appreciate your support and really grateful to all of our subscribers. So let's leave it right there. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.